0: Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like where are you from, there was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode three, pop parties, not really. Gordon had a million jobs and I never saw much of him. If and when I needed to find him, I would go to the basement bar of the Deluxe where he worked at night. Gorton looked good behind a bar. It was his stage and I was always proud to know him when he was serving up drinks. When we finished our mundane business, nothing so important to remember, he would let me stay until closing time, listening to bands and dancing alone on the dance floor. I liked most of the bands, but my favorite was Sundance. They covered a song by Jackson Brown called Dr. My Eyes, which I loved, even though I hated Jackson Brown. There was something smarmy about him, I could tell. But when Sundance played his song, it sounded like Fayetteville, positive, upbeat, and full of sunshine. And it always made me happy. Every member of the band enthralled me, But it was the bass player Charlie that I developed a severe and all-consuming crush on. He was a slender man with olive skin and dark hair, very well put together, suave and chic, adorned in big silver bracelets and perfectly proportioned silver-hooped earrings. He was much tidier than your average hippie man, and his presence was worldly, warm, and charming. I would use every penny of my allowance to buy him jewelry and gifts, and I operated under the sincere belief that I had a chance with him. He was flattered, but uncomfortable, and my extreme attention was beginning to annoy him. So much so, that Sue had to have a talk with me. My expression of love was obnoxious, and it made everyone nervous. There was no place for this crush to go, except to heartbreak. It took a long time, but I finally gave up on Charlie. Not because I was smart, but because I was embarrassed. My mortification happened one day at the river when a large group of us went there for a swim. As usual, all the hippies were naked, but not me, because I didn't get naked. I didn't want to see or be seen naked, and I tried my best to ignore all the flaunting body parts. Men's penises were the worst, because they hung in strange shapes and were covered in cranky hair that just seemed to want to get away. I tried to avert my eyes and damn if they didn't land on some woman's breasts. The only good thing about seeing all those boobs was learning that there were several different nipple shapes. I had no idea there was such a variety but I didn't linger long and then as one tends to do out of discomfort, I lowered my eyes only to find myself gazing at a large bush of hair growing out of some woman's crotch. Jesus Christ, how could I take these people seriously now that I had seen them in this unflattering and exposed manner? Much to my horror and distress, Charlie showed up to the river that day. And yes, he got naked. The last thing in life I wanted to see was Charlie's penis. It would change everything and it did. So I ignored him. Every time he walked towards me, I'd walk away. I could tell that he was confused and i didn't want to hurt his feelings or have to explain my unhippy behavior but this was too much for a preteen girl to bear i had always thought of charlie as classy and in my opinion classy people kept their clothes on and their penises hidden so that was it love over and because i was fickle i turned my attention towards my next favorite sundance member Dan, the drummer. Billy. Even though I was the kind of kid who preferred the company of adults, I did have Billy. He was my age, and he lived in a ramshackle house down the street. Billy and his family were hillbillies, but some people called them poor white trash. Right from the start, We had that in common. People called me a dirty hippie, and he was a dirty hillbilly, so who cared? If you asked me, Billy was just a whole lot of fun. I felt comfortable at Billy's house, even though his family wasn't too keen on me at first. In Arkansas, being a hippie was worse than being poor white trash. But Billy and I were inseparable and his family was happy that he had finally found a friend. It was obvious that Billy had a crush on me, but the feeling wasn't mutual. I ignored it and Billy didn't push, so we ended up the best of friends. His infatuation was probably more on the boobs that were beginning to sprout from my chest. Actually, they skipped sprouting and went straight to enormous. They were high and pointy and in your face. And when they weren't giving you a howdy-do salute, they were flopping all over the place. I hated them. And before the complaint came in later that year from my teacher who said my boobs were a distraction in the classroom, I wrapped them with masking tape in order to flatten them down. Once the teacher made it official, by writing Gorton a letter about said boobs, Sue had to buy me a bra, something that hippie women never wore and sometimes even burned. Billy and I spent a lot of time at his house, which I loved. It was an amusement park of junk and it smelled like biscuits, bacon, and wet dog hair. Almost every inch of the house was piled high to the ceiling with stuff. In order to get from one room to the other, you had to walk through a tunnel that was just as wide as Billy's very large parents. There was a wedge or two of free space on the kitchen table, and that is where we ate our Kraft macaroni and cheese. We had to tuck our paper plates in between several loaves of Wonder Bread, liter bottles of Dr. Pepper, and greasy engine parts. Our favorite place to hang out was in Billy's parents' bedroom. We'd lounge in the crevice made by their oversized bodies, listening to 45s on the turntable and eating whole packages of cookies. Billy and I loved the band Badfinger. They sounded like the Beatles, only better. The effervescent music lifted us from the doldrums of the hot and heavy southern air and transported our chunky bodies to a place where we felt light and free. We played the song Baby Blue over and over again because it sounded like Billy and me. Sweet, simple, and slightly sad. Love I have for you, pop parties, not really. There didn't seem to be any secrets in this life with the hippies, and that is why, in order to impress my friend Billy, I told him that we had pop parties, It was hardly the truth and hardly a lie. People gathered often, smoking freely and frequently, but not with the seemingly illicit intent of a pop party. Billy must have told his parents, or maybe it was just a coincidence, that on the heels of my confession, Cleveland Street received a surprise visit from a social worker. Lucky for us, She arrived on a day when Bob Tarlow had been on his hands and knees scrubbing the floors and cleaning the house. The house sparkled with respectability, and the smell of marijuana was replaced by a lemon scented disinfectant. The worker had a few words with Bob, who always made a good impression, and then decided to come back when my official guardian was home. Because of Gorton's wild and intimidating appearance and the sheer unorthodoxy of our little family, there was concern. But Gorton was a man who loved the game and he succeeded at being the freak who could outplay the establishment at its own rules. He was persuasive and convincing and he had an unnerving charm which did indeed win the social worker over. She felt assured that I was being well cared for and that the household was a stable and nurturing environment. As far as the state was concerned, my mother's letter to Gorton, stating that that he could have me for a little while, was legal enough for them. If the social worker had come by a couple of days later, the outcome and consequences of her visit may have been very different. (laughs) I was alone in the house when I saw a plate of chocolate brownies with a note next to them. Only eat these brownies if you have plenty of free time. It was summer and I had nothing but free time. So being a lover of all things chocolate, I ate several of the brownies. The next thing I remember, I was lying on my bed with Sue's face wavering over me. Her voice was distorted and it sounded like she was speaking backwards and in slow motion. I couldn't make out the words she was saying but I think she was asking me what happened and if I was all right. I could barely get my eyes open and I couldn't speak. My body was plastered to the bed. My mouth was bone dry and the world was fuzzy and undulating. Sue was concerned, but I had no idea what was wrong with me or any way to communicate that fact. Another squiggly person entered the room and said something to Sue, and they both began to chuckle. Sue got me some water and told me that I would be okay. I had eaten the magic brownies, and I just needed to sleep it off. Billy was my best friend, but he wasn't my only friend. There was a girl named Sheila, and Billy was very jealous of her. She got the part of me that Billy wanted, the sexual part. Sheila and I didn't talk much, not like Billy and me, but we did spend a lot of time together. Sheila and I had great adventures roaming the hilly streets of Fayetteville. We would ride our bikes to the town square and steal from Woolworths, our favorite store, or swim for hours in the Skull Creek swimming pool. Skull Creek was an apartment complex located behind Cleveland Street, and whenever the management would question us about our living status, I would do all the talking. Sheila lived in La La Land, so the lying was up to me. I was pretty good at it and we were rarely kicked out. Sheila was short and round, with straight hair and crooked teeth. And she had that same strange look in her eyes that my mother would sometimes get. A focused yet faraway stare, as if she were concentrating on an event taking place in the unforeseeable future. I guess that's why we didn't talk much. Sheila wasn't living in the present. She was lost somewhere in the future. I don't remember a thing about her family, but I know they weren't hippies. They probably had more in common with Billy's family than mine. It was on the U of A campus where we discovered our sexuality. One day, for no reason at all, we ended up sitting on each other's laps face to face. We pushed forward and down as hard as we could, and then we squeezed. Sheila's compacted molehills touched my squishy mountains, and then our laps began to tingle. Being urged on by the call of nature, we intuitively started rocking back and forth. When we got more confident, We would slide our hands down the front of each other's pants. We would rock until our bodies shuddered. And then with pure joy, we would topple over onto the green, green grass. This all started innocently. But soon enough, we began to look forward to our little game. And we found a better place to play the VW bus that was parked next to my house. It was like having our own little bedroom and we could play undetected for hours. When we got even more comfortable with each other, pieces of our clothing came off and we played this game naked. Sheila and I never kissed. This wasn't about kissing. It wasn't about love. It was only about the tingling. Although I knew we needed to keep our little game a secret, to me it was nothing more than a game. No different than playing kickball in the backyard with the kids from the neighborhood. As a matter of fact, Sheila and I had a crush on the same boy. His name was Mark Dover, and he was almost attainable to two unpopular girls such as us. Unlike Billy, Mark's body was developing muscle tone, and he had only a pinch of baby fat. His head was square, and his nostrils flared, and during one game of kickball, I crashed right into him, and my finger went up his nose. He was suffering from allergies or a cold, so my finger touched wet, hot mucus. It was so gross that it ended my crush on him for good. As far as I was concerned, Sheila could have him. He was a bit too macho and thick for me anyway. I preferred a more delicate man with sensibilities, like David Bowie, of course. About a half a mile away from Cleveland Street, there were two hippie kids, a brother and a sister, that Sue wanted me to play with. The sister loved horses and she had books and pictures of them plastered all over her room. She even looked like a horse. Her devotion to them piqued my curiosity because I had never loved anything with such commitment. The hippie kids and I would stay up late on Friday nights eating oversized snicker bars and watching Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. We took baths together and experienced the who done it floating log in the bathtub event god knows it wasn't me and it wasn't mine life was great with the hippie kids until i saw someone stash an envelope of money on the very top of a bookshelf surcoming to my primordial nature i climbed up the shelves monkey style and took several crisp 20 dollar bills There was shock and disappointment when everyone realized that I was the thief. My behavior had just crashed against the belief system of our community, and Gorton was extremely pissed off. His face turned blood red, his eyes bulged, and his mouth became a wide-open cavern with his humongous teeth snarling at me. I didn't hear his lecture because all I could see were teeth. His anger must have frightened him because after expressing it, he hid away in the tippity-top of his attic bedroom. But the fact was, as I began to exhale in my new life, it was apparent that I was full of anger, rage, and disobedience, all of which I had kept more or less hidden behind what many called a shy and beautiful smile. The freedom of expression that the hippies encouraged was becoming their worst nightmare when it came to me. As I slowly uncoiled, I pushed and spewed, and Bob Tarlow was mostly on the receiving end of my vitriolic behavior. He was the brick wall that I bounced all my craziness off, even when that wasn't my intention. I just couldn't seem to control my razor-sharp tongue or the smart-ass attitude that was coming out of my mouth. Somewhere along the way, I had become a bitch, and for Bob and me, it all came to a head on my 11th birthday.